Grandma's Chocolate Cake. On Kauai, when I was a little girl, my grandparents would come visit from Atlanta. They'd check a large igloo cooler with their luggage, but instead of clothes, it'd be filled with food from the bulk bin from the mainland, prunes and dried figs, shelled peanuts and pounds of oats. Not that the island didn't have anything for breakfast, but it was cheaper and my grandmother thought more convenient to do it that way. My grandmother was a Depression-era baby, and my ancestors immigrated to the U.S. in the early 19th century, fleeing the pogroms in Russia, an organized massacre of a particular ethnic group. It's strange to realize there was always an oppressor, and with it, generational fear to simultaneously assimilate so you didn't die, and keep your culture alive so you didn't die. But oppression doesn't have to be in the form of a tyrant. My mother almost died as a baby. At least that was her story. And to a baby being left by her mother at the hospital, even though it was temporary and she was in the hands of nurses, death was probably what it felt like. The body remembers, even when the mind buries the memory for self-protection. She told me she was allergic to her mother's milk, and she was sick and abandoned. She never trusted her mother again. She'd spend the rest of her life mothering others while looking for a mother she could trust, expecting her friends, partners, me, to nurture her in return while missing the part on how to parent herself. She liked to say that by the time I knew them, my grandparents had made plenty of money, but still, my grandma's favorite thing to do was to go to the International DeKalb Farmer's Market, a cavernous warehouse space loud and cold with row after row of produce from all over the world, organic baked goods in a seafood section so expansive the entire place reeked. It was a 30-minute drive from Midtown, where my grandparents lived, to the outskirts of Decatur, but to my grandmother, a deal was priceless. She'd find the ripest melon. She'd stick her thumb through the cantaloupe like a stamp. She'd show the produce manager the fruit was rotten and then ask for it for free. The story was either funny or insane, depending on who you asked although the funniest things are also usually insane. In their igloo, along with the pantry items, wrapped in a layer of plastic and then foil, there were always rectangular logs of my grandma's chocolate cake, which wasn't actually a chocolate cake, but a marble cake that tasted more like coffee than chocolate, half vanilla, half chocolate swirls of fudge, with a chocolate glaze, the recipe always made double. Grandma would portion it up, and then put it in the freezer to save. My mother's distaste for rules didn't just apply to society. She hated following recipes and liked to cook simple food that would be done in 20 minutes. I didn't grow up with all-purpose flour or resealable bags of refined sugar in the house. For special occasions, she'd bake tofu cheesecake sweetened with honey or whole wheat carrot cake made in the Cuisinart, also sweetened with honey. My grandmother's cake was made with white flour and real sugar, but because of that, as my grandmother was just as health-minded, she'd dictate how much anyone could eat at any one time, which was always no more than a half an inch. Sometimes when pressed, she'd move the knife over another half. She'd serve it with coffee ice cream and cut up fruit for her and my grandpa. My mom preferred it with grandma's homemade applesauce and cranberry sauce if it was around the holidays. There's an adage in Judaism that summarizes every Jewish holiday. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. We were not religious Jews, and besides for Hanukkah, we weren't cultural Jews either. 
But the thing about culture is it's not only an outward practice. The movements are pressed into our genes. In Nicole Walker's essay, Where I Went Wrong, in the fall 2022 issue of the Georgia Review, she meditates on personal history and climate change while challenging Judeo-Christian's linear story arc, the way the path moves forward like a road. Walker discusses how Navajo storytellers consider spider webs and spirals as possible models instead, and employs Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Thulu Scene, 2016, as a guide who speaks of the childhood string game, Cat's Cradle, as thinking as well as making practices, pedagogical practices, and cosmological performances. Walker says to change the way we think will require changing the way we narrate our lives. I was an embryo in my fetal mother, which meant my grandmother carried me, my mother carried my own girls, and I have already carried my grandchildren. On a cellular level, we're imprinted with each other's narratives. And without explicit knowledge, when I felt into the layers of grandma's chocolate cake, they weren't a rectangle, but a circle. My grandmother continued to make her cake after we moved to Atlanta and after my grandfather died. And a couple years before she was diagnosed with lymphoma, she stopped and her housekeeper took over. It wasn't the easiest recipe and my mother would lament how after my grandmother stopped baking, the chocolate cake was never the same, which was true, but she'd forget to add the part where she wasn't the same either. Eastern medicine aims to treat the root of the disease. Western attempts to treat the symptom. Scavenging for clues throughout my mother's years of illness, various alternative medicine doctors seemed to agree on three root causes. Leftover tissue from a male fetus she had carried, biological. Her dysentery from her time in India, biological and environmental. And her father dying with not only her own, but generations of unresolved familial trauma, emotional. Sickness isn't linear either. By the time I got married, my grandmother had been gone for six years, and my mother had been living with scleroderma for eight. We had our ceremony in the morning at Wind Park, a block down from my grandparents' old condo. It was the same green space I used to walk around with my grandma after early dinner. For the first two years after we moved to Georgia, we'd go every Sunday. My grandma would speed walk to work off her meal while I'd keep up just because I could. My mom would be several feet behind. She'd tell me, first I can't keep up with my mother, and now my daughter. After the noonness wore off, I didn't want to go every Sunday to a dinner where my mother restricted how many homemade egg rolls I could eat, and my grandmother measured dessert. I used to complain to her, and she'd reason, it won't be forever, Jazzy. Grandpa will be dead soon. And he was. But she didn't mention how my grandpa's death would accelerate her symptoms, not a physical transmission, but an energetic one. Our last year living in Hawaii, she developed early signs of Raynaud's, where her fingers painfully swelled and turned blue. She knew it was genetic. My grandpa had it also. But while Raynaud's usually doesn't kill you, it can be associated with underlying autoimmune disorders. Once the body mistakes its own healthy tissues as foreign, diseases often stack on top of the other. I've witnessed how birth and death tend to awaken cellular trauma that hasn't been dealt with. Within a year of his passing, she'd be diagnosed with scleroderma. I asked for the recipe from one of my aunts and made my grandma's chocolate cake to serve after our vows. When a few wedding guests asked, I'd said, It's grandma's chocolate cake. My mother's daughter, I shunned tradition. 
But in that moment, I understood the pool of structure, where nostalgia wasn't a thing of the past, but an actual token of connection materialized into the present. It was the closest thing I had to threads of what I was made of, to a simpler time, before I knew intimately of sickness and death, but the recipe was written by someone who knew how to make it, and just like history, parts were left imprecise. My grandma no longer there to clarify things like what six ounces of chocolate meant. Bars? Semi-sweet? Unsweetened? There weren't instructions on how you're meant to marble the vanilla cake with the fudge. I'd never been invited into her kitchen with her to bake, and without notation for the size of pans, my first time my cakes overflowed. Half of the batter ended up on the bottom of the oven. But with repetition I learned, and when Tom and I visited my parents in a poem on our way to our honeymoon, four months after our wedding, I too packed my suitcase with logs of chocolate cake wrapped in a layer of plastic and foil and brought it to my mother, because although she was not a baker, I was. I served her a piece smaller than a half an inch. By then, she always looked emaciated. She was 30 pounds from her healthy weight and would never gain it back. I heated her piece in the microwave with a scoop of coffee ice cream with homemade apple and cranberry sauce on the side, and I asked, How is it? She answered, It's dry. I went out on their patio after. Tom was at the same table they'd had since Atlanta, the one I'd sat around between my parents and their ring. He'd served himself a half a log, and mid-bite I teased, Grandma would never let you have such a big piece. I told him, Mom says it's dry. She's being ridiculous, Jazzy. He sounded just like her. Well, he forked another huge bite into his mouth and then smiled at me like a toddler to prove it, chocolate smeared over his front teeth. But like always, I couldn't hear everyone's truth, only her own. In Louise Hay's book, Heal Your Body, a pocket-sized handbook that lists the physical manifestation of the emotional knot, describes scleroderma as protecting the self from life, not trusting yourself to be there and to take care of yourself. I lived for her approval. I believed her, which meant I questioned myself, but not to move closer to my own truth. I took her feedback as criticism and a challenge, that it was me, I was the problem. And if I made the cake with a little more skill and finesse, love, then I could make up for what I was lacking. I could fix myself and fix the cake. And in the process, I'd fix her, her disease, her abandonment issues, her victim mentality, her mother wound, the way she believed her parents replaced their love for her, for money. For years, I continued the tradition of grandma's chocolate cake for birthdays or holiday get-togethers. It felt like it was for nostalgia and connection, but more, even when she wasn't there, by baking the cake, I wanted to make my grandmother proud, my mother happy, and bring us all back to a time before. But her symptoms grew worse, her throat calcified, and moisture was no longer just a craving. She required a softness to be able to swallow her life. Unlike cancer, my mother's disease was expressed on the outside for everyone to see. She looked crippled, a bud halfway to closing, her joints and tissues so hardened that nothing and no one could penetrate. Her immune system was quite smart, really. It was only trying to protect her, nothing more than a misguided infant who didn't understand the nuance in being left, only that she cried out and her mother wasn't there. It's not her body's fault that it went too far. Once Autumn was old enough, and my mother had been gone for six years, she helped me in the kitchen. The cake that had taken me hours with her as my sous chef would be cut in half. 
I'd since discovered two 10 by 12 round cake pans were the right size for the large recipe. We'd still play with the technique. After all, there was no formula for life of how to marble the vanilla with chocolate fudge, and I'd use decaf coffee in place of regular for the kids. Me and her would share the first bite out of the oven and we'd laugh. It's dry. It's a dry cake. Over the summer, we visited my brother. Autumn and I baked grandma's chocolate cake. By then, we'd made it a handful of times together. We wrapped logs with plastic but skipped the foil. We packed it in our suitcase and I presented it to his family. The same cake we ate with our mother. The cake my grandmother made. The one that folded us into the past. He asked me, how is it? It's okay, I said. It's just not the greatest cake. I continued, even when it no longer served, when it didn't taste right or feel good, even when I'd found something better, which I had. Ina Garten's Betty's chocolate cake was a much better cake. I made it once for my mother. It had coffee and chocolate with a chocolate buttercream frosting and the added layer of a moist crumb. She liked it okay, but not really. Not like Grandma's chocolate cake. If it was purely about taste and preference, we're allowed to be divergent, except she'd never admit it. She couldn't concede something she'd never opened to. But what if it wasn't about the dryness, but pleasure, the warmth in my mother's stomach, the way they would blend into a fond childhood memory? She was the eldest of five siblings, an artistic, expressive family. She had a vital need to drink up the world, a simple fact that became lost in the loudness of her pain body was that my mother, she loved life. And what I witnessed of her playing the guitar and singing in the church band, her riding her pinto horse, Pixen, their long hair down and wild in the wind, her jogging with my father around my pulley road while I kept up on my bike, and her reaction became less about the cake and more about what had been. It took me, what I want to say was too long, but I know must have been just right, because I did eventually arrive. Is tradition about fear, celebration? If it's about survival, then it will always be both. A few weeks after we returned from my brother's, I stood in our kitchen, my favorite position for eating, and microwaved the last half log of grandma's chocolate cake from the freezer. When it was heated in just the right way, the fudge glaze turned melty, the cake warmed through, it transformed like all of us could into its fullest moist potential. I ate the half a log and with each bite thought, Grandma would never. I thanked Grandma for the connection and my mother, I told her, I love you. But unless someone specifically requested it, I would never make Grandma's chocolate cake again. Its roots, I still respected, but they were the kind I no longer desired to hold on to. It was the cake my mother ate and my grandmother made and excited me as a little girl. And it was time to let myself choose for my truest connection to be to me, for the rituals I engaged in, to not just be a reflection on the past, but an expression of who I desired to become. I wanted them to taste good, feel nourishing going down, and with a quiet personal joy, claim full ownership from the results. Walker says, what explodes a linear narrative? A thousand cross-weaving stories. My mother's opinion wasn't wrong, but like so much of her control over my body, the cake she held on to was linear. My cake was round. It means seeing another, a situation, a story, 
with not just my eye, but my whole being. I'm Jasmine Rasmussen, author and narrator of Saved, a memoir on purpose. Join me weekly for an oral telling of my novel, written in verse and prose, broken into short, digestible episodes. I'll guide you through my journey back to self. Click the link below to subscribe or go to jasmineleahrasmussen.substack.com to find out more.